You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany sermon series, Family Matters. In this series, we speak into the most contentious societal issues of our day, not with the world's wisdom, but with God's. The blood of Jesus has ransomed people from every tribe, nation, and language across the earth. And this diverse, reconciled church will reign alongside Christ into eternity. Now hear the word of the Lord. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you guys. Welcome. Uh, My name is Jonah, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, If you're visiting, welcome. Uh, seeing some familiar faces coming back to service. So, all right, we're going to get through it, y'all. Uh, it's good to see you guys. Uh, this is a, a bit of an exciting, fun Sunday for us because uh, it, you may not know, but Sojourn Church New Albany is part of a family of local churches spread through Indiana and Kentucky called the Sojourn Collective. And this morning launch, uh, represents, or marks, I guess, the uh, official launch day of our sixth Sojourn Collective Church, Sojourn North. Oh, okay. That was a surprising amount of excitement. Do we have a picture? Oh, yeah. That's mean, you know, it's a graphic. I wouldn't call it a picture. But uh, so Sojourn North is up in Oldham County. It's being led by Chad Lewis, who some of you guys know. He's been around Sojourn for a long, long, long time, and we're really excited. And we wanted to try to think of a simple way we could welcome them and just share our excitement with them. And so uh, preferably not you guys right now, uh, but after church, Get on Facebook, go to the Sojourn Church North Facebook page and just say, welcome, love you guys, praying for you guys, welcome to the family. We just want to kind of flood that Facebook page with uh, well wishes and welcome. So, uh, internet, on behalf of Sojourn New Albany, welcome to the family, Sojourn North. Happy launch Sunday. So, that's exciting for us. It's been a long time coming, and we're excited to see God continue to build His church. So, last week, uh, we considered some of the nature of sin and how complicated the church family can be. And the the flow we kind of worked through, to put your mind back there for a second, is personal sin left unattended becomes generational sin. Generational sin left unattended becomes systemic sin. And it can just kind of permeate out into culture, into family systems, into work environments, where these broken things just feel normal. And one thing I think we teased on because we were in the book of Genesis, you know, which is the beginning, but I wanted to make a little more clear to this week is that's not a recent phenomenon or the idea of 
the sins of a father being passed to the children or broken family systems creating broken children. This has been going on since the Garden of Eden. And we get this example here in Acts 6 that Kristen read for us. So again, verse 1 pretty much says, says the situation. As the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So real quick, have you ever heard somebody talk about wanting to be part of like a, you know, a first century Christian church? You know, I just wish we could go back to the book of Acts. Anybody ever heard somebody say that? I just want to go back because they really figured it out. So this is a church led by the apostles, you guys. Okay, this is generation one Christianity. People who had lunch with Jesus went to church here. And we see, uh, I just, it's such an encouragement to me. There are rumblings of discontent. You see that, right? Can you put that verse back up just for a second? You know, I don't really need to, I guess, but I think it's funny. And uh, Carter, my man back there, always gets mad at me for doing that. I think it's so funny, right? The first century church, led by the apostles, there's already rumblings of discontent. We don't like what's going on here. People have been complaining at church as long as there's been broken families. But what are they complaining about? Well, the Bible celebrates the diversity of God's creation. I would say Genesis to Revelation. The diversity of his creation, both ethnically, racially, and both, I don't know, nature, food. It celebrates the wonder of it all, but it also doesn't shy away from the fact that living in that diversity with harmony and unity is very, very difficult. Here, the blessing of ethnic diversity has been distorted into racial animosity, and it it targets some of the most vulnerable people in that society, widows. These are people without safety net. These were people without support. And so some of these widows, the Greek-speaking widows, were being discriminated against because of their Greek origins. Uh, this wasn't just one Christian not doing their duty. Did you notice it doesn't say they came and confronted the apostles and said, hey, Phil isn't passing out food to everybody. You know, there was something in the, the distribution of this program, this, this system that was excluding these Greek people. And something that you may not be aware of, but excluding Greeks was, was actually quite normal for Jewish people for a long, 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 long time. And in places that was done out of religious reasons, but for some of them, it, they probably were excluding the Greeks because they thought they were being good Jews. And to be a good Jew probably looked the same as being a good Christian. Some of them probably thought they were being pleasing to the Lord by discriminating. For some, it was probably just normal. Jesus changed everything about how we relate to one another. He broke down these walls of division and discrimination, and I'm guessing a church led by the apostles had pretty good preaching and pretty good doctrine. But it was that preaching and that doctrine was confronting, I don't give or take a few thousand years of culture and what felt normal. Normal takes time to change. We'll soon see through this passage that there's hope for racial tensions like these, even within the church. But I want you to see that there was racism, discrimination, this kind of division based, based on ethnic lines, even in this first century church that we tend to, I would say, idealize in some way. Two things you want, I think are really important to notice that we see right here in this first verse is that first, the problem is named. This is what's going on. They were able to call it something, speak to it. They were 
naming the problem. And second, the leaders listened when the minorities were bringing up the problem. If we want to be a healthier family as the church, break free from the generational sins that we considered last week, we have to grow in our ability to name and listen. Name the problems and listen to the people bringing them up. And this is true in your workplace. This is true in your family. This is true in us as the church. It's true in government. It's true in society as a whole. It's very hard to change the things that we cannot name. Think what's one of the first things the doctor does after all of the tests. He gives you a diagnosis. Often the prescription, the cure is only as good as the diagnosis. So if we want health, we have to be able to name something and we have to be able to listen. So this morning, I want to help us see how the nature of sin that we talked about last week, and maybe out of my own security, I want to remind you how many amens we got last week. Last week was perhaps the most amen sermon I've ever preached. Uh, I just want to remind you how much we amened last week. Uh, So we talked about the nature of sin last week and how it perpetuates and how it can permeate. And I want to show you how this has played out particularly in the United States of America. And to press it a little bit further, how the Protestant evangelical church has been instrumental in perpetuating the sin of white supremacy in the United States. And I want to make two things clear as we begin. First, every race, every ethnicity, every culture has problems that it must take responsibility for. None of what I'm about to say is intended to leave anybody off the hook from facing, from owning, from confronting their own personal generational sins. And second, we must avoid the temptation of thinking that race or racism is under every rock in the United States. We can't blame everything on racism. Race is not under every rock in the United States, but it is under some rocks. And In my experience in spaces like ours, and what do I mean spaces like ours? Predominantly white people and predominantly white places. In in spaces like ours, which I've spent, how old am I? I'm 37. So yeah, I've spent about 19 years in churches like these. It tells me that many of us struggle to name, and even more, we struggle to listen to sins of our fathers. So... I don't need you to remember everything that I'm about to say. I'm, I'm honestly not that interested in you being able to remember every of these bullet points I'm about to give as much as I want us corporately to feel the weight of this place we call home and all that's gone on. And so we're going to start in 1619. 1619 is the first record we have of an African being purchased in the state of Virginia. It wasn't a state at the time. That's the first record we have of an African being purchased in the United States, 1619. And it was purchased by the governor and the head merchant of the port. So this wasn't, you know, this wasn't a Kentucky moonshine deal in the back alley. This was two of the most important people in that place made the first purchase. In 1614, there was the trial of John Punch. Out of curiosity, anybody ever study the trial of John Punch in school growing up? Did they cover this in your history books? John Punch ran away as an indentured servant along with two European men. So many people would come to the colonies, to the New World, by agreeing to work for a set amount of time for free. They would pay your passage, and I would 
be indentured to serve you for a period of time. John Punch was an African. He ran away with two European men. They were caught. The two European men were whipped, and three years were added to their service. John Punch was whipped, and he was made a servant for life. Our earliest legislatures, legislators and judges did not listen to the words of the book of Proverbs that say it is wrong to show favoritism when passing judgment. In the earliest days of our country, we see discrimination and unfair judgments being passed on people based solely on their origin. In 1660, Christians' indentured service was limited to six years. And I want you to see how often the word Christian shows up over the next few minutes as we're talking about legislation. The term, legal term of Christian origin, does anybody want to guess what continent those people came from? Maybe you don't know what continents are. Europe. Christian was synonymous with of European descent. They would just say of Christian origin or Christian descent. So they limited how long a Christian could be an indentured servant. So-called Christians seemed to not have listened to Jesus' simple words in John 13. Love each other, just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. And yet the Christians in power discriminated against how Christians would be allowed to serve or not serve versus how those of African descent would be. In 1662, a child's legal status was tied to their birth mother. Now, why would that be a big deal? Masters were concerned about what would happen to the the child born from him, and there's kids in the room, so I want to be careful how I say this. Uh, If a child was born from a master violating one of his slaves, what happens to that child? Particular of, of particular concern was what would happen if that child was baptized? What would happen if that child was a Christian? Because now we have a Christian who's a slave, and we have laws against that. So they passed a law saying whatever state the mother was in, regardless of how the child was conceived, regardless of the child's faith, whatever state the mother was in, that would be the state of the child for life. This was done to ensure, the way they put it, was no loss of property for slave owners. And essentially, this gave way to slave owners treating black men and women like cattle to be bred for the sake of their economies. In 1667, legislation is passed preventing the freeing of a person if they are baptized. Christians abandoned the clear command of Christ to support the owning of humans. They abandoned the clear command of Christ to allow themselves to continue owning humans. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But masters did not want their slaves evangelized because then they would be baptized and then they must be set free because they are Christians. Christian was just another way for them to say white. Africans coming to North America and hearing the gospel was seen as a threat to the economy, not a blessing to the church. This legislation legalized the lifelong owning of a Christian so long as they were black. In 1680, it was made illegal for those of African descent to do violence against Christians. Again, you have to see that Christian equals European or white. 
And what this meant was that it was legal for Christians to violate, to whip, to beat Africans, and Africans could do nothing in response. In 1691, we finally got a little more honest, and the term Christian was replaced by the word white. And many, this is the first time we see white show up in the United States in legislation in 1691. And the law said if any white person married a non-white person, they would be exiled for life. They would be shipped on a boat and sent out of the country for life. And this again made it clear that a conversion to Christianity by non-whites would not grant them freedom or a welcome place in society. And this law made it explicit that only white Christians could own slaves. In 1723, voting rights were limited only to whites, even if an African was free. Voting rights was granted on the basis of complexion and origin alone. We're at 1723. These personal sins of white supremacy gave way to generational sins, which in turn created systemic sins built upon white supremacy. This is historical fact in the laws and the Christians and the Christianity practice of the time. These generational sins bled into every major field of study. In the 1750s, a new field of science emerges called racial biology. The core was the belief set forth by a man named Friedrich Blumenbach that Adam and Eve were white, and therefore white was the superior race. The Bible was used to defend white supremacy in the United States. Benjamin Rush, another scientist, referred to dark skin as a disease which he named Negroidism. Christopher Miners would write of the beautiful white race. This is a scientist. This would be like Dr. Fauci. This is a head scientist. He referred to the beautiful white race as opposed to the ugly black race. Samuel Morton, a devout Episcopalian, claimed white people had larger, superior brains, whereas those of African descent had small, inferior brains. This thinking was... This was the way people thought in culture, and our founding fathers were not exempt from this too. While Thomas Jefferson was writing, all men are created equal. You know that line, right? You've heard that line. All men are created equal. He was also writing things like this. This is from his work, Notes on the State of Virginia. Comparing them, that is black people, by their faculties of memory, reason, and imagination, it appears to me that in memory they are equal to whites. In reason, much inferior. Never yet could I find that a black had uttered a thought above the level of plain narration. Never seen even an elementary trait of painting or sculpture. The blacks, whether originally a distinct race or made distinct by time and circumstance, quite the euphemism, are inferior to the whites in the endowments both of body and mind. In one place he's saying all men are created equal, which all Christian for the... 150 years of our nation's history up to this point meant white people. How can one man say all men are created equal while over here saying these people are not equal? By all men, he clearly meant white men. The first act of our post-independence Congress was to define who could become a citizen of the United States. A Congress that included many of the same people that signed the Declaration of Independence. They concluded the following... Any alien being a free white person who shall have resided within the limits and under the jurisdiction of the United States for the term of two years may be admitted to become a citizen thereof. What's it take to become a citizen of the United States? You have to live here for two years and be white. That was the first act of our new Congress. 
Decisions driven by white supremacy, not God's design for relationships or societies. Deuteronomy 10, you too must show love to foreigners, for you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. From 1619 on, our laws, our science, our economy, and the majority of our religious practice was structured to promote the supremacy of white people. Some of it was intentional. Some of it was just implicit. Others just doing what felt normal. The phrase, this is why sometimes you guys wonder, why do I get so angry? That phrase, just preached the gospel. It emerged from revivalist preachers like Charles Finney, who had incredible influence in this area. And these men argued that social structures don't change without individual conversion. So we should not deal with any laws. We should not deal with any structures and systems. Let's just preach the gospel. Social reform only happens through conversion. I mean, that is Charles Finney 101. So Christians should abandon any efforts for social reform and only focus on conversion. Just preach the gospel in the nation, in the history of our nation was synonymous for keep them in their chains. George Whitfield, a hero of the faith who many of us have read and celebrated, he wanted to start an orphanage and we love orphans. Do you know how he funded his orphanage in Georgia? And you can read his journals. He said, I will buy slaves, and if we can run this on free labor, we can do this orphanage. Jonathan Edwards, a hero of New England, a hero of Protestant churches like ours, while he is writing about the power of religious affections, the power of the beauty of God to change a heart, he was doing so while owning slaves. Even movements committed to defending the core doctrines of the Bible are tainted. Some of you have heard of fundamentalism before, right? That's not, that's not just like a negative label. That, that's a movement that came about in the early 1900s that was to bring us back to the core truths of the scriptures. It was a response to the liberal Christianity that was coming out of Europe at the time. And maybe you've heard of this wealthy oil baron named, let me get his name right here, Lyman Stewart. He was, he was like a Rockefeller, and he really cared about the church. So the fundamentalists had put together this resource collection called the Fundamentals, right? Very creative. So Lyman Stewart paid for every minister and missionary in the United States to get a free copy of the Fundamentals, and I believe also a Bible, except for the black ones. When it, when it came time to try to restructure society or return to the core doctrines of the faith, the African-American church, which we had created, wasn't even considered. One historian of the black experience in America, in the American church, puts it this way. The men who coined the term fundamentalism were white, and in their worldview, and indeed the worldview of most white Americans of the era, Christianity was defined by the goals and aspirations of white, middle-class, educated Protestants. For fundamentalists, Christianity represented the highest achievement of white civilization. We were just preaching the gospel while debating if slaves should be baptized. While the blood of soldiers who fought to make slavery illegal in the Civil War was still wet, Reconstruction was abandoned, Jim Crow laws were written, devastating an already hurting nation. Civil rights movement gave way to covert practices such as redlining, where maps were drawn, redrawn to determine which parts of town could receive loans and funding. 
Does anybody want to guess who lived in the neighborhoods where there were red lines put around them? National highways. Have you ever wondered why the highways were put where they were? National highways split our major cities along what historian W.E.B. Du Bois called the color line. Suburbs were created shortly after. Do you know how these massive developments, which had never happened before, received funding? How someone goes and gets funding for 15,000 homes in the middle of the country where nobody lives? Through agreements with banks, both private and federal, that on the deeds of the home would be written, this home may not be sold to a black person for life. Many homes in this country still have written on the deed of the home, a person of African descent may not own this piece of property. Last week, we learned some of what it means that, that sins can be passed on to the third and fourth generation. My father is 71 years old. I am two generations from Abraham Lincoln. Two generations from Lincoln. I am one generation from the civil rights movement. And yet the average family descended from slaves in the United States has 10% the net worth of the average white family. Children... from families descended from slavery are two and a half times more likely to die before their first birthday than white children. Black women are three times more likely to die during childbirth. And the, I mean, there's three statistics of what it looks like right now. From 1619 until the very recent past, our country has oppressed African-Americans in ways that we have oppressed no other people in this United, these United States. We have, we have oppressed, persecuted them in particular ways, unlike any other group. You may have heard that Sundays are the most segregated hour of the week. And what I want you to know is it's our fault. It's, it's men like me. We built this. Those who did not build it, perpetuated it. And the, ma the, the vast majority of us simply did not listen the way the apostles did. We refuse to acknowledge the sins of our fathers. We refuse to name the sin of white supremacy. Look at what happened in Acts, verse 3. Select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. If you continue in that passage, or maybe you noticed it when Kristen read it, the names of the people listed are all Greek. Greek people are being discriminated against by Hebrew people. What did the apostles do? They listened to the group being discriminated, and then they empowered people from the discriminated group to go and fix it. By and large, as a church, as the Protestant evangelical church in general, we have not listened, we have not empowered. Instead, we've become more clever in our attempts to keep things the way that just feel normal to us. And I want you to know, in the history of the church, it is not normal for a group of professing Christians 
to respond to the cries of the oppressed by only reminding them of their forgiveness. Sit with that sentence for a second. How wild that seems. I'm being abused. I'm being oppressed. They're killing my children. They're splitting up my family. They won't let me own anything. Don't worry. Your sins are forgiven. It's not normal for the church to adopt the cultural sins around us. And yet this is what has happened by and large in our country for 400 years. The apostles listened, they named it, and they appointed people to fix it. We are ambassadors for Christ, citizens of heaven, called to work so that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't know how you're feeling right now, but I want you to know we have barely scratched the surface. We've tried to provide you with resources to learn if you're willing to learn. You only have to open your app to find them. The Sojourn Collective app. You want videos? You've got videos. You want a book? You've got to go read The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby if you want to see how the church has participated in this. I... I'm begging you to see, or at least be willing to believe, just willing to see it, that white supremacy is in the fabric of our nation, and it is in the fabric of Protestant churches. We must name it and fight it. And in case you missed it, there was a white supremacist KKK neo-Nazi rally in Henryville this week. There's a national headquarters of a white supremacist group in Pekin. These are not old problems. We will not be like so many other churches over the last 400 years that sat by and watched. And frankly, I will not be like so many white pastors who justified, excused, and avoided our present problem. Healthy families can have hard conversations. True patriots can face the flaws of your nation. It is not American to ignore what's happened before us. It's not American to whitewash everything and pretend like everything has been fine. True patriots can face the flaws of their nation. So I am begging you, love Jesus enough to face our past. Love Jesus enough to feel the weight of this and to begin listening to your brothers and sisters. And we can do this because we do not carry the weight alone. We carry it with one another, but most of all, we carry it with Christ. Last week, we said the whole gospel of Jesus is the only thing that gives us enough security, enough assurance, and enough direction to face what is ours to face, to face the ugliest, the hardest parts of who we are and where we've been, knowing that we are safe and we are still loved. And so we remember the night that he was betrayed. Jesus took a loaf of bread. He gave thanks for it and broke it, and he said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. After the meal, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. Drink this in remembrance of me. So when you know you are okay, when you know your sins are forgiven and that you are sealed by the blood of Christ in union with God, then you can face whatever you need to face. This is an opportunity for us to be willing to listen and to learn. And so our tradition is now to take our little cups I got one somewhere. If you missed one, they're on the sound booth. And listen, like, I don't don't know how you guys feel. I'll be honest, I don't feel great right now. I've been throwing books across my office the last two years. Um, This has not been a pleasant journey for me leading up to this, both relationally, personally, 
uh, or feedback we've gotten in the church as we've talked about this before. The only thing that can give us courage and conviction to stand and face uh, what is ours to face, to stand secure, is the gospel of Jesus. And so I want you to open this and take your wafer and remember that the body of Christ was given for you. You are safe and you are his. Eat this in remembrance of him. Take the cup of juice. And remember, this is what seals your relationship with God. It's not our history and it's not our future. It's the shed blood of Jesus. Drink this in remembrance of him. I'll pray for us and then we will respond through singing and then giving him our life, our love. And so you can respond by giving on your way out. There'll be offering boxes in the front and back of the room. I'll pray for us and then we'll sing. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.